Let's pray and ask God for his help. Please join me as we pray. A gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank and praise you for this foundational statement of who you are and how your people are to relate to you. Please help us to understand this passage. Help us to think rightly about how it applies to us. And Father, please work in us by your Spirit so that we are soft-hearted, ready to make changes, even radical changes, to bring ourselves in line with what you want for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever heard of the term zero tolerance? Zero tolerance. It's originally a law enforcement term. Zero tolerance policing. It means that any infringement of the law, no matter how small, must be punished. You can't ignore it. No exceptions, no discretion. The idea, the modern idea of zero tolerance policing came from America in the 1990s. There were some authors and they argued that where police ignore petty crime in a particular area, uh, where they ignore the little things, that creates the impression that no one cares about crime in the area. That then fragments the community, it creates fear and disorder, and it makes people start to think they can get away with more serious crimes, because nobody cares. The authors called it the broken windows theory. Uh, They used the illustration of a building, They said if one window breaks and you just ignore it, you leave it there, you don't fix it, you'll soon find that lots of windows are getting broken because people think you don't care. And so the idea is uh, you crack down on petty crime in an area. No crime is too small. It's got to be cracked down on. It's got to be punished. And then as the theory goes, you will find that, that, and I quote, you'll find that offenders will be increasingly reluctant to commit serious offences at least in that geographical area. Uh, The most famous success that is claimed for zero-tolerance policing is in New York. Back in the 1990s, over a period of a couple of years of zero-tolerance policing under Mayor Giuliani, the crime rate was more than halved over a period of two to three years. Now, there is plenty of argument about whether zero-tolerance policing is in fact effective, But this term, zero tolerance, has now come to be used quite widely in a number of different contexts. Uh, So, for example, some schools use it. They say we have a zero tolerance approach to drugs or a zero tolerance approach to fighting or something like that. Uh, I even noticed this week that the Sea Shepherd, the anti-whaling boat, used the term in their latest campaign. Let me quote. They say, this year, our campaign is aptly dubbed Operation Zero Tolerance because we aim to send the whalers home without them killing even a single whale. Zero tolerance. Well, in our studies in this book of Deuteronomy, we've reached chapter 6. And as the chapter begins, Moses again calls on Israel to obey God's law. He says that obedience will bring blessing in the promised land. And then... In this passage, Moses makes this foundational statement. It's a statement about God. Moses says that God is one. In other words, there is only one God. There aren't other gods. Only one God. God is unique. God is singular. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Have a look with me. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There aren't two gods for Israel to love. There aren't 16 gods vying for Israel's attention and affection. There is only one God. The Lord is one. And so Israel need to love this one God with their whole self, with everything they are. It's not love the Lord your God with part of your heart, but then love some other God with another part of your heart. No, no, no. The Lord is one. So he should be loved wholeheartedly. Verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Not only must Israel love God with, their, with all of their selves, they need to love him in every aspect of their lives. It's not uh, love the Lord your God when you're at church, but then love um, money when you're at work, or, or love comfort when you're at home. No, 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 the Lord is one. And so Israel must love this same one Lord at home, and at work, and at church, and everywhere. They need to obey him with their hands, with what they do. They need to have his law at the front of their minds in the way that they live their lives. They need to have godly houses, godly cities. There is no aspect of their lives that should not be God's. Verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. All of life. Uh, Moses then goes on to talk about the good times, the good times that Israel will have in the promised land. He says you must not forget God in the good times. Verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, Houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. For the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God. And his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Israel need to remember God in the good times when they eat and are satisfied. They also need to trust him in the bad times. Moses reminds the Israelites about a tough time that they had had uh, at a place called Massah. There at Massah they had no water to drink. Uh, Their response was the classic Israelite response in the wilderness. They grumbled against God. They said, well, obviously God doesn't love us. He just brought us out here so that we wouldn't have water and we'd all die and we were better off back in Egypt. Moses says, don't do it again. Don't test the Lord like that. You need to trust God when things are tough. Verse 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massah. 
Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on earth to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said. Israel need to obey God with all of their lives, in the good times, in the bad times, all the time, with all of their selves, because as they need to remind their children, God has saved them. God is their rescuer. And God wants what is best for them. These laws are good for them, good for their lives. Righteous laws. Verse 20. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you, tell him. We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on earth to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we're careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God, as he commanded us, that will be our righteousness. It's a very simple concept, isn't it? And yet it is utterly life-transforming. The Lord is one. And so Israel need to love him with everything that they are, in every aspect of their lives, in every circumstance, whether good or bad. But, but in the land that Israel are heading to, there is a problem, a big problem. In the land where Israel are going, there are people who don't love the Lord, people who follow idols, people who could turn Israel away from following God, people who could stop Israel from loving God, people who could turn their children or their grandchildren away from loving God. God's policy is one of zero tolerance. God says, have no mercy. Don't make any compromise. Don't join with them in any way. Don't make treaties. Don't intermarry with them. Don't let them or their gods be around at all as a temptation God says, destroy them totally. Chapter 7 and verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you're to do to them. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. 
The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And Moses goes on to remind Israel, he says, you're not God's people because you're better than anybody else. You're not God's people because you're bigger or more numerous than anybody else. You are God's people out of sheer grace. But this God of grace will not tolerate your disloyalty. Verse 7. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. But those who hate him, he will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. Therefore, take care to follow the commands, decrees and laws I give you today. Moses says again that God will bless them if they obey. And again he tells them they've got to completely rid the land of idols and idolaters. Pick it up in verse 16. Verse 16, you must destroy all the peoples the Lord your God gives over to you. Do not look on them with pity and do not serve their gods for that will be a snare to you. Uh, Moses speaks to the people who are worried about the nations who are in the land. He says, remember God saved you from Egypt. God will help you. He is strong. He's powerful. Bit by bit, the land will be yours. And it, but he reminds them again, but make sure when you get there and when you win, you've got to totally destroy all the idols of the land. Zero tolerance. Pick it up in verse 23. Verse 23. He will give their kings into your hand and you will wipe out their names from under heaven. No one will be able to stand up against you. You will destroy them. The images of their gods you are to burn in the fire. Do not covet the silver and gold on them and do not take it for yourselves or you'll be ensnared by it for it is detestable to the Lord your God. Do not bring a detestable thing into your house or you like it will be set apart for destruction. Utterly abhor and detest it for it is set apart for destruction. Okay, well can you see what's here in this passage? The Lord is one. That means Israel have to love him with their whole selves in every part of their lives, in good times and in bad. And it therefore means that they need to root out anything that will stop them from loving God. They need to rid the promised land of all idolatry, all idolaters, because it could lead them or their children or their grandchildren astray. It's got to be zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. I remember uh, back in 1996, I was a student minister at Epping Presbyterian Church. Uh, Jimmy will remember this, but uh, uh, one week I was called in at short notice to preach. And I'd been working on a paper on Deuteronomy chapter 7 at Bible College, and so I thought I'd I'd rework it for a talk for that Sunday. Uh, What nobody told me was that there was a baptism that day. There were something like 100 visitors in the church that day, And I preached on how Israel had to go into the promised land and kill everyone. (laughs) Not what the people were expecting. And the looks of shock on everybody's faces got gradually shockinger and shockinger. Probably not such a good idea. 
But baptism or not, this is a real issue, isn't it? The fact is, God tells Israel to commit seven genocides here. Seven genocides. Zero tolerance, zero mercy, zero compromise. That's pretty severe. Wouldn't you say? That is pretty harsh, pretty strong. Uh, So before I think about how this passage applies to us, and I do want to think about how it applies to us, it's very important, this passage, but before we get there, I just want us to reflect just for a minute on this issue. The God who commands seven genocides. I'm not going to pretend to give you a full answer, just just a couple of thoughts. First thought is this. Uh, As far as God is concerned, every single person in history is under the death penalty. God says that every single person, apart from Jesus, has sinned. Nobody has loved God with all their heart, soul, mind and strength. And God says that the wages of sin is death. So this issue of killing everyone in the promised land, in one sense, there's nothing unique about it. It it is not unique that these people are under God's death sentence. It is true for all of us. And it will come true. For all of us. Sure, the time and place and mode of death for these sinners might be unusual, but there is nothing unusual about God's death sentence on them. The death rate for sinners still stands at 100%. And of course, for us as Christians, we know this is why Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus died to pay our death penalty. Jesus died in our place. He didn't have a picnic in our place. He didn't eat a marshmallow in our place. That's not what we deserve from God. No, no, Jesus died in our place because the death penalty hangs over us all. A second related thought is this. God is clear that the peoples of this land richly deserved his judgment. Uh, We're going to see it in next week's passage again. God says he's driving out the nations because of their wickedness. But it goes back way further much further in fact way back in genesis chapter 15 genesis chapter 15 400 years before this book of deuteronomy god spoke to abraham he said abraham your descendants are going to live in this promised land but he said it's not going to happen for a while and he gave a reason the reason he gave was this because and i quote the sin of the amorites has not yet reached its full measure the sin of the amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God had shown plenty of patience with the people in the Promised Land. 400 years of patience. But by the time of Deuteronomy, their sin had reached its full measure. God's patience was finished. It was time for judgment. And of course, as Christians, we know... Again, that that is why Jesus died. He died because God's judgment is richly deserved. We deserve God's judgment. And that is why Jesus died, to bear God's judgment on our behalf. Now, of course, it's still striking that God asks his people to do the judging here. It's very striking that they have to go in and kill everyone 
The only thing that I would say about that is that God makes no similar command to us as Christians. Uh, We are not called to kill anyone. But it's not that God has changed. It's not that God has changed. It's not that God's enemies are no longer going to suffer. God says that he's raised Jesus to his own right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. It's not like God is suddenly happy with his enemies. But the thing is, the nature of our salvation as Christians is different to the nature of the salvation of the Israelites. The nature of our new covenant, our New Testament salvation is different. Uh, Jesus hasn't saved us from a physical place, uh, like God saved Israel from the land of Egypt. And our promised land, our promised land is not a place here on this earth. No, no, our promised land is the new heaven and new earth. And so our enemies are not people. We don't need to kill anybody to remove temptation from heaven. And so God calls us as Christians not to kill any human enemies we might have, but to love them. Jesus said, love your enemies. As I say, I don't pretend to have all the answers here. And it's not up to me to justify God, the God of seven genocides. But but there are just a couple of thoughts. Having said all that, though, there is plenty that we can and and should and must learn from Deuteronomy chapters 6 to 7. This is quite a foundational passage in Jesus' mind, quite a foundational passage uh, in terms of the way the Bible is structured. And you see, God hasn't changed. God is still one. There aren't lots of gods... There is only one God. And this one God still demands that we love and serve him with all ourselves in every aspect of our lives. Jesus himself said that to love God with all our heart, soul and mind was the most important part of God's law. Similarly, the Apostle Paul The Apostle Paul says, in view of God's mercy, you should offer your whole lives to God. God has not changed on this since Deuteronomy. God demands that his New Testament people, his people saved through the death and resurrection of Jesus, love him heart and soul, every part of their lives, in good times and in bad. And not only so... But God still calls on us to have a zero-tolerance policy with anything that will stop us from loving him. If something is causing us to sin, we need to get rid of it. Jesus put this very vividly in a very vivid metaphor. He said, and I've put this on your outline, he said, if your right eye, what you look at, causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand, what you do, causes you to stumble, cut it off, don't do it, and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is a big challenge, wouldn't you say? This is a big challenge. These chapters in Deuteronomy, this concept of One God for all of life, this is a massive challenge. It's a big challenge to people like us because we live compartmentalised lives. We worship God on Sundays in church, in that section, that compartment of our lives, but then we've got a whole heap of other compartments, compartments that we like to seal off from God. Friend, friend, let let me put it this way. 
Let me ask you. I know you're a godly Christian at church. You've got us all convinced. But is this what you like at home? Is this what you like with your flatmate? Or when you're dealing with your wife? Or or your husband? Or when you're looking after your kids? Are, Are you speaking and living the truths of the gospel at home? Would the people you live with say that you're a godly Christian? Or is that part sealed off? What about at work? Or at study? Are you known as a Christian worker? A Christian student? Do you love God, love Jesus, serve Jesus in those aspects of your life? Or are those ones off limits to God? What about your sporting team? Or when you're doing your hobby? Or when you're with the other mums at mother's group? It's not like God is the God of church, but then when you get to work, money suddenly becomes God. Or power or status. It's not like when you get home, suddenly comfort is God. Or when you play sports, suddenly winning is God. No, no, there is only one God. And he demands to be the God of every aspect, every compartment, every section of your life. He doesn't let you seal it off. He says, no exceptions. That's a challenge to compartmentalise people like us. God also demands that we have a zero tolerance for the things that stop us from loving him. Zero tolerance for the things that tempt us to disobey him. Again, that's a big challenge, isn't it? Because there's a whole, I reckon, we're thoroughly tolerant of the things that lead us to sin. Don't you reckon? The TV we watch, the, the, the books and magazines we read, the computers or smart devices we use, the, the games we play, the company we keep, they may often lead us into sin, but we have so let them invade our lives that we can't imagine getting rid of them. I remember talking recently to a bloke who was struggling with pornography. He said, Jeff, the thing is, I can get porn in a matter of like 10 seconds on my smartphone. It is so easily available, I can't get away from it. I said, so get rid of your smartphone. Seemed perfectly obvious to me. It's like I'd suddenly shifted into Swahili. Suddenly I was talking a foreign language. The idea of life without a smartphone was beyond comprehension. I mean, you think, gouge out your eye and throw it away. This was way worse. The idea of living with a smartphone completely beyond comprehension, even if it did mean regularly looking at porn. Uh, I remember talking a while ago to a lady who was having a big fight with her husband about money. She kept on racking up these big credit card bills. She admitted she was being greedy. She admitted she didn't need most of what she was buying. It was just to make her feel good about herself. But she said to me, it's so easy with the credit card. You know, if I'm not feeling good, I just go. Go swiping and I can get whatever I want. I said, so get rid of the credit card. Again, it's like I'd suddenly switched to Ukrainian or something. Like a foreign language. The idea of not having a credit card... Completely incomprehensible. It was more important to have the credit card than to avoid greed or to avoid angering her husband. What would it look like, do you reckon, 
to have a zero tolerance for the things that lead you into sin? What would it look like? What would it look like for your TV watching? Zero tolerance for the things that lead you into sin. What would it look like for uh, what you read? Or, Or for the music you listen to? I'm not a big fan of most Christian music, but uh, when I'm listening to music in the car and suddenly I hear the words of the music when my children are there, (laughs) suddenly I realise that the music's perhaps not quite so helpful. What would it mean for for your credit card? Or for your computer or your smartphone? What would it mean for your friendships? To have zero tolerance for the things that stop you from loving God. Friend, is there something you need to stop doing? Is there some place you need to stop going to? Something you need to switch off? Something you need to get rid of? Some relationship you need to end? Are there things leading you to sin that you need to stop tolerating? I know know it sounds radical to even ask these questions, Sounds fanatical, perhaps, and maybe even hopelessly unrealistic that anybody could live without a smartphone. Does it feel like I'm speaking a foreign language? Does it feel like I'm, I'm taking this all way too seriously, much too religious? Friends, God commands seven genocides to get rid of the things that lead his people into sin. I would say that he takes it pretty seriously, don't you? Wouldn't you? There is only one God. He demands that we love him heart and soul, everything we are, every part of our lives. He demands zero tolerance for the things that stop us. He is deadly serious about this. Friends, we need to be the same. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving and holy Heavenly Father, We thank and praise you that you are the one true God. We thank and praise you because you have saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ and we acknowledge that you deserve that we should love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength in every part of our lives, in good times and in bad, and that we should root out of our lives anything that stops us from loving you. Our Father, we're so sorry for our half-heartedness about this. We're so sorry for our double-mindedness Please forgive us. Please fill us with your spirit that we may love you as you deserve. We pray it in Jesus' name.